All right, you turn in your Bibles to Mark 13. That's where we're going to be spending our time today. Pastor Chuck wanted me to correct his uh, announcement that the quarterly meeting is in two weeks, not next week. Uh, so you can give him a hard time about his math at a later. But only if you have the high ground of having read the emails beforehand, so just be careful about that. All right, Mike, uh, Mark 13, verses 14 through 27. Let me read this for us. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Let's pray together. Father God, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to receive your word, and we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to rest on us, to abide in us today, to bring us understanding from these hard and difficult words. So Lord, may your will be done with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This week, we are continuing our study of Mark 13, which, as I just said, is a very difficult passage. It's very cryptic. It's provocative. It, it turns our minds to the end of the age, to the return of Christ. And in this passage, we have to talk about destruction and tribulation, false prophets, false Christ, the Antichrist, and the end of all things in heaven and on earth. A few weeks ago, a letter arrived here at the church and it was just addressed to church at our location. There was no return address. And inside, there were three pages, front and back, scrawled with charts and diagrams and numbers and math and some of the most incoherent rantings about obscure prophecies in Scripture, dates in American history, and some wild conspiracy theories. And I want to let you down early on in the sermon that I didn't learn a whole lot there and I won't be bringing in any of that information. 
However, you can verify with the other staff that I spent way more time looking at these papers than they really deserved. Chuck told me that there was a childlike giddiness about me in exploring these papers. And it makes you realize that there is an attraction to these confident assertions about the end times and their fulfillment here and now. And if I were to preach these things to you with confidence, man, maybe you could walk away being impressed with me because your itching ears have been satisfied or your interest has been piqued or I gave you just really interesting food for thought about where the world is right now, which powers are good and which are evil. And boy, would I have some ammunition right now. I mean, COVID, Russia and Ukraine, Elon Musk runs Twitter. There's, there's no end to the things that I could just bring confident, plausible assur- assertions about to you. But I have a lack of interest in doing those things or trying to match up prophecies with today's news, firstly, because I don't really buy it. But secondly, and more importantly, it shouldn't change anything about this passage. It shouldn't make any of these prophecies more relevant by relating it to the news today. And too often, when the confident assertions about the end times are being made, the conclusions are often, how can we preserve our life? How can we preserve our wealth? How can we keep our status when there's increasing evil in the world? Rather than, how can I give up more of my life? How can I have less attachment to my stuff? How can I prepare to suffer well? Last week, Pastor Chuck led us through these verses that speak of the signs that will accompany the end of the age. There will be many claiming to be Christ, claiming that he has returned. Nations will rise against nation. There will be earthquakes. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. And in the face of these trials, he called us to endurance rather than escape. And as the gospel goes out to all nations, followers of Christ will be brought before councils and authorities. They'll be questioned. They'll be beaten. They'll be called to give an account. Families will be torn apart because of the gospel. Christ's church will be hated. But Christ has sent the Holy Spirit to comfort and guide and speak in the time of persecution. And we must recognize that these signs, they weigh heavy on the church. But Christ has equipped us in the power of the Spirit so that we can endure to the end. And these themes continue on in our passage today as we ponder the tribulation that is to come, the close of the age, the return of Christ, and the fate of the church. This discussion is not meant to bring anxiety. This passage is not meant to strike fear Jesus gives this teaching so that we may know that any power that would rise against the church to thwart the spread of the gospel or to draw us away from Christ will not be successful. The church is called and equipped to endure to the end. And the weight of these prophecies gives us a sober wakefulness that we may keep resolute focus on Christ no matter what may come our way. Because Christ has a plan for the elect, we must heed his teaching, we must be on guard, and we must endure. Let's read again these verses 14 through 19. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and will never be. At this point in the prophecy, Jesus is getting more specific as to the events of the end times. There is a specific event with the abomination of desolation that will trigger the harshest tribulation that has ever been seen or will ever be seen on this earth. And this is not a secret or merely spiritual event, but one with true physical ramifications which the reader, especially those in Judea, must take caution to understand. And it is important that we heed Jesus' teaching And in order to do that, we must gain greater understanding of this prophecy. So bear with me, follow the the dots that I'm trying to lead you through scripture here. Because this word abomination of desolation, I'm sure you all have great knowledge of this already, but just in case you don't, we're going to go back to Daniel and we're going to understand this reference that Jesus is making. This will be up on the slides. He is making a reference to this prophecy given by Daniel in Daniel 9 and Daniel 11. There's just a couple of verses on this. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. For half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And from Daniel 11... Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now the context in Daniel's prophecy is the prophecy of the 70 weeks, which is a prophecy of the future of God's people and seemingly a time frame about how all of this is going to take place. Now, Your first glance at any of these passages might make your eyes glaze over and you just don't feel like you have any frame of reference for how to approach these words. It's admittedly difficult, but there is a key to these prophecies that I want you to keep in mind when you come across these passages. And I think this will be most important for us today. We need to understand that in terms of these prophecies being fulfilled, there is the future fulfillment, but then there are nearer fulfillments that take place. Pastor Chuck introduced us last week to the Colorado mountain illustration, that when you look at the mountains on the horizon, the peaks look close together, almost like they are in a flat two-dimensional line across the land. But as you get closer or even up in those mountains, you see that the peak that looked close was actually miles and miles further away in the distance. So where it looked at first like it was a two-dimensional image, it was actually three-dimensional. From the perspective of the one giving the prophecy, it can seem like the events are all happening at once, like the two-dimensional view of the mountains. And as history proceeds, it becomes clearer that there were some events happening sooner and some that were further off. And sometimes the same prophecy was meant for a near event that then anticipates and escalates to the further event. 
Now, even though those peaks seem close together at first, they may be incredibly far apart. With the abomination of desolation, we see this in action. Daniel is writing in the 6th century B.C. Then in the 2nd century B.C., there was an event with a prince named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Don't worry, there's not going to be a quiz later. And Antiochus, he was oppressing the Jews. He forbid many traditions and practices of the Jews, namely sacrifices and offerings at the temple. He then went to the altar and made a sacrifice of swine at the altar. And then he forced the high priest and others to eat the flesh of the pig. This practice was an abomination that polluted or made desolate the temple. Antiochus stood in the place that he had no right to be. He made unacceptable, abominable, idolatrous sacrifices in the temple. This event is clearly in line with the prophecy that Daniel made. Now, follow me back to Mark, to the prophecy that Jesus gives, and we can see why this event is significant. We're going to see in the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke that when they're reporting the same event, they give us some clarity on what's going on. In Matthew's account, and this will be up on the screen, in Matthew's account, Jesus is calling us back to this prophecy in Daniel. And to many in Jesus' day, they would have said that the prophecy was fulfilled already when Antiochus made that sacrifice, and then he was cursed, and he died because of it. But Jesus is teaching that prophecy was not yet fulfilled. But it will be fulfilled in the same vein or in the same type as what has already been seen. This prophecy is yet to be fulfilled, but those hearing him give this prophecy need to be particularly aware. And then the next slide will show us Luke's passage on this. It says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know its desolation has come near. And then the instructions about those in Judea. This tells us more of what Jesus had in mind. When Jerusalem is surrounding by armies, the desolation is near. The coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is linked to this prophecy. In a similar way, we've already seen this fulfilled. Within a generation of Jesus giving the prophecy, the Jews rebelled against the Roman Empire. The commander Titus sieged Jerusalem, demolished the temple, and he comes in with the sign of the emperor who is worshipped as God. And this fulfilled Jesus' prophecy of the desolation and destruction of the temple by a prince like Antiochus. In this destruction of Jerusalem, it is reported that hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed or enslaved. And this happened at the time of the Passover celebration, so the city was flooded with Jews from the surrounding regions. And much of the death that occurred was because of widespread famine in the land. And the famine was so severe that the people resorted to cannibalism. In Jesus' vision of the future, he sees this coming and he gives specific warning to the people of Judea. When you see the troops lining up, flee. 
Flee to the mountains. This requires immediate action. No turning back, no gathering belongings, just flee. Because Jesus had to correct the thinking that the destruction of the temple was happening at the same time that the Messiah was returning. The temple was going to be destroyed long before the gospel spread to all nations. As I've been studying this, I've just gotten the overwhelming sense that we do not talk enough about the destruction of the temple. And you may have been taught that the only way to think about these verses is in the future sense of what is still yet to come. But I think it is critical that we see the events already fulfilled, but also as a type of what is still to come. It is a huge deal that Jesus made prophetic prediction that has already come to pass. He said within a generation the temple would be destroyed. He said the image of idolatry would lay the temple desolate. He spoke of unbelievable tribulation for the people in Jerusalem if they didn't drop what they were doing and flee to the mountains. And all of this has come to pass. When we recognize that Jesus made true prophecy, we know that his word is true and trustworthy. And when we submit ourselves to him, we know that he is leading us into truth and into life. And we have historical record by the way of early church writer Eusebius, who tells that the early church heeded Jesus' teaching and fled to the mountains to a town called Pella. And in this prophecy, Jesus is shepherding the church. He's preserving the elect and he's leading them to life. It was not just enough to hear this prophecy, they needed to heed his teaching. If you obeyed Jesus' teaching, for you, it was life. If you rejected it, or you didn't take it seriously, or you just ignored it, it meant great tribulation and certain death for you. So what does this mean for us as we hear these words today? The destruction of the temple put a definite end to sacrifice, to ritual, to the outward appearance of godliness. It was the push for God's people to go and worship in spirit and in truth, to live by faith, to walk by the spirit, to not go back to their old religious system, but instead to submit themselves fully to the way of Jesus. God is so gracious in giving us this prophecy because we see that the temple destruction was not random, but it was intimately tied to his plan for his people. And we must follow in the example of those who left Jerusalem, not by being a doomsday prepper or by going and living in some compound somewhere, but by faithfully following the words of Jesus. So as we look to the future fulfillment of Jesus' words, we need to check whether we are storing up our treasures in heaven or if we're storing up our treasures here on earth. The events described here show us that following Christ became very inconvenient. Will you follow Christ when it means giving up your possessions? When it means losing all political favor? when it means enduring the harshest of tribulation? As we already talked about today, this is present reality for a lot of the church around the world. 
our brothers and sisters in churches and in prison and in these countries experiencing this tribulation, thinking, wow, Jesus' return is right around the corner. And we have to put ourselves in the mindset of those people rather than experiencing it ourselves. But with all of this, as we consider this, we can trust Jesus has a plan for his elect. He is going to shepherd his church. And it means we must follow him in all circumstances. Let's read on the rest of this section, starting again in verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. <clears throat> As we consider this next section of verses, we need to recognize the complexity of prophetic uh, interpretation and the difficulty of the passage in front of us. And Pastor Chuck called us last week to humility with our understanding of the end times, and this is just as important this week. I listened to one Bible scholar talk about this passage, and he narrowed it down to six major views of what is going on here. Six. And that was a modest number, he said. The views range from being completely about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, all the way to being completely about future events. And then the other views are somewhere in between, some combination or blending of those events. And I would fall into that camp. As I told you before, I think there is a near fulfillment and a future fulfillment. When we consider that there are many views about this passage, it's not like there was five heretical views and then the one view that's right that I'm going to teach you. We're talking about six views of people who are committed to Scripture, people who love Jesus, people who are faithful teachers and preachers of God's Word, who believe and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and are eagerly awaiting His return. And in the Free Church, we updated our statement of faith back in 2019 to reflect the diversity of convictions around these issues and to affirm that it's not an issue worth dividing over. But in these verses in particular, as we might have varying views on the timing or the fulfillment of the events, I want us to focus instead on the things that have more clarity. And I see that it is, one, that God has set the days, and two, that we must be on guard. The prophecies in Daniel and in Revelation speak of an end that is truly cataclysmic with wrath and tribulation. And the destruction of the temple, as foretold by Jesus and witnessed in history, was a mini-apocalypse. If we go back some verses and we consider verse 8, Jesus compares the, t- the signs of the time to being like birth pains. We hear wars, we hear famines, we hear natural disasters, the nations rising and falling. And these do not signify the end but instead point to the end that is coming. 
the onset of contractions tells you that the arrival of the baby is imminent. Between the onset and the birth, the contractions increase in frequency and intensity. So what was experienced in the mini-apocalypse was a type of what we can anticipate to come in the future. Consider that with these words about cutting short the days. During the siege of Jerusalem, it was God who appointed the time. God set the boundaries and said, this many days and then no further. And through it all, his eyes are on the elect. He shepherded and guided his people And so, too, we anticipate an even greater tribulation to come upon the world. And God has numbered those days. Humans will not be left to determine the end of those days with their wars. God is going to cut them short. And through it all, his eyes are on his elect, his chosen people. And he is shepherding and guiding them just as he did before. And even though God is sovereign over these events, Jesus repeatedly advises his hearers to be on guard. We saw it first in verse 9. We see it here again in verse 23, and we'll see it again next week. These statements here, they bookend a section about tribulation, and in particular, the persecution of the church. The church will be oppressed by questioning, beatings, and torture, And on top of that, they will contend with a world that is increasingly subjected to evil, to disaster and suffering. The church also has to be on guard against deception. In the days surrounding the siege of Jerusalem, they needed to be aware that this was not the return of Christ. And since those days, we have had false teachers, we've had false prophets, we've had false Christs continue to rise up in the world just to name a few in the last 200 years. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses both deny the deity of Christ in one form or fashion. They follow after false prophets and arguably false messiahs. And yet, to the outside world, they are considered to be Christians and would even call themselves Christians. Seventh-day Adventists, were birthed out of a teaching by William Miller that Christ was going to return in 1844. And now, instead of denouncing that as false prophecy, there was just a reinterpretation of, that was a a cleansing that was going on in the heavenly realm that's anticipating the future. And we have also witnessed the extreme fanaticism of religious leaders like David Koresh and Jim Jones who claim to be some kind of reincarnation of Jesus. It is so easy to look backwards, to listen to podcasts about these things, and and you see the line of false teaching and cult behavior, and it's easy to denounce these groups. But movements like this are built out of people who are pulled out of churches, who are led away by false promises, who are enticed by charismatic leaders. And there is going to be no shortage of world events and trials and birth pains in this life. And likewise, we will continue to see people arise trying to lead astray the church. And we must be on guard for whatever false prophets may arise next or are maybe already at work among us. 
be on guard not only of false teaching and false prophecy, but even to the extent of signs and wonders that may accompany them. Be on guard as your eyes may even deceive you. How much more do we need to hear that in a day where we are just consuming with our eyes? Often without even thinking about it, just scrolling our feeds, accepting whatever is coming at us, news clips, tweets, hundreds of videos a day on TikTok. We must be on guard. And we talk first about how we need to be devoted to Christ and his teaching. We need to hear his warnings and heed his call to guard ourselves. And I think it's important for us to ask, how close am I to being led astray? I think we could diagnose this in a couple of ways. First of all, how well do you know your Bible? Do you know it well enough to discern false teaching and false prophets? How easy would it be for a confident, charismatic, articulate teacher to come in and give you a new twist on Scripture? Are you just waiting for the right person to string together world events and political leaders and vague prophecies to be swept away into false teaching? Secondly, and probably more convicting, what is competing with Christ for your affections and devotion? What are the cares in your life that consume your mind and your heart? Is it comfort? Is it pleasure? Is it financial security? Is it increasing status? Is it the applause and affection of others? What temptations are you allowing to grow? What sins have you left unrepented? What steals you away from church community? What is taking you off guard? False Christs, false prophets will continue to arise. Are you ready? Are you awake? Jesus has given these teachings so that his elect people will be prepared, and we must be on our guard. Let's read these final verses and see that Jesus is calling us to endure. But in those days, in verse 24, after that tribulation... The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Jesus now turns his focus to be clearly about that far mountain peak, the end of the age, the coming of Christ. And this will not be a mere localized event. This is a cosmic, universal, everyone, everything, everywhere kind of event. And certainly this happens after the tribulation of those days, considering we're still here 2,000 years later. And in line with what I've been saying up to this point, I believe that this is referring to being after the great tribulation spoken of in Revelation. That tribulation will be followed by the coming of Jesus by the gathering of the saints and the final judgment. I believe the biggest thing we need to take away from this is that Jesus is surely coming back for us. It has been peppered throughout this passage, but I want us to take personally this word elect. 
As Jesus has been telling the signs of the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, he continues to bring it back to the elect. As we grow impatient, as we're eagerly awaiting the arrival of Christ, our comfort is in that word, elect. If our faith is in Christ, and if we have gone from death to life and are indwelt by his Holy Spirit, then we know that we are God's chosen people. Through every circumstance of these apocalyptic events, his concern has been about his elect people. He calls them and leads them out of the tribulation in Jerusalem. He cuts short the days of universal suffering. He warns and guards from false prophets and false messiahs. Until the sun ceases to shine and the stars fall from heaven through trial, tribulation, suffering, or sword. Until the Son of Man returns to claim his own, God is faithful to his elect people. Jesus is surely coming back for us. We must also see a contrast here. The tribulation will be great, but the return of Christ will be greater. The wars and earthquakes might trouble and shake the earth, but the return of Christ will shake the heavens. These earthly conflicts may affect the world, but when Christ returns, it affects the whole universe. Christ is sure to come, and there is not a chance you could miss it. So until we pass away or Christ returns, we must wait with eager longing for that day, on guard for every temptation, patiently enduring every trial that comes our way. He has given us the security and hope of being his chosen people for now and forevermore. And about 30 years after Jesus spoke these words here, the church was already having to endure persecution, to endure hardship and false teachers. And Peter, who was present as Jesus was giving these teachings, he then advises the next generation on how to consider Christ's return. This will be up on the screen from 2 Peter chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? To Jesus, his return was just on the horizon. What is a thousand years? What's two thousand years to the Lord? Not slow, but patient. And as long as he tarries, the gospel goes forth so that the elect people like you and me, we would be able to put our faith in Christ. And this will continue on for the time that God has ordained, for as many generations that should come. So let us not be foolish. Christ is coming back. And that day will be upon us as stealthily as a thief in the night. And with all of this coming in imminently, 
we must ask the question that Peter poses. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Christ has his mind set on the elect, so let us be faithful and devoted to him, heeding his teachings, on guard, and enduring to the end. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience in drawing your people to you. Thank you for counting us worthy to hear these teachings and to be called to repentance, to be called to follow you, to hear your warnings, and ultimately to know our comfort is in your return. Help us to trust even more dearly in your providence and your sovereignty. Would you bring glory to yourself through us in our lives of holiness and obedience? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.